Do you travel often, perhaps to foreign places where you do not speak the language? Well, this week's giveaway is for you. Thanks to our partner, Beta, this week we will be giving away three Pocket Talk voice translators. The Pocket Talk makes communicating with someone that speaks a different language super easy and enjoyable. It supports up to 74 languages and uses built-in mobile data to provide two-way foreign language translations in real time. Enter this week's giveaway for a chance to win a free Pocket Talk voice translator by going to www.mission.org giveaway or try it out at your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Stephanie is joined by Renee DeResta, a 2019 Mozilla Fellow in Media, Misinformation, and Trust. Renee investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks and has advised Congress, the State Department, and other businesses on the topic of propaganda online. On today's episode, Stephanie and Renee discuss her ongoing projects, such as studying Taiwan's 2020 presidential election, the red flags she looks for online to identify anomalous information, and how she thinks individuals can keep a healthy skepticism of the news today. All right, Renee, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. How many podcasts have you done before? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe 10 or 12 now, I think. So you're a pro. Totally. <laughs> awesome. So your title right now, correct me if I'm wrong, is a Mozilla Fellow in Media Misinformation and Trust, right? Yes. So Mozilla Fellow. And then I am also the uh, Technical Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory as of uh, just about two months ago. Cool. So can you give me a little background on what both of those jobs look like? What's your day-to-day look like? Yeah. So the day-to-day, I've always got a couple projects and the ones for Stanford um, fall into kind of three main buckets. They're sort of forensic analysis of disinformation campaigns that we know happened, um, usually things attributed by the platform or attributed by the government. Uh, then there is um, proactive detection of, uh, you know, what's what's going on in the information space, how are narratives spreading, what are what political conversations are emerging, election integrity, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the last of the Stanford buckets is the policy, um, you know, kind of thinking about what, given what we know about the information ecosystem, what can we say about regulatory means to address kind of uh, flaws in the technical infrastructure and social media um, ecosystem that allow these kinds of bad things to happen. The Mozilla work has been going on now for uh, for two years. I'm just about at two years. And it's a fellowship. Mozilla does some really amazing work on internet health, thinking about internet health from a whole bunch of different standpoints. And that can be anything from harassment to accessibility to privacy to security. And so they offered me a fellowship to work on the idea, again, the idea of misinformation. So not so much hostile state actors doing bad things, but just the idea that one of the keys to a healthy information environment is the notion of information integrity. And so what I do there is I look at ways in which design choices and and platform decisions have kind of facilitated misinformation, disinformation, and other things. Got it. So what is the most recent findings that you were most surprised by or excited by or that you're working on right now? Yeah. So just this morning, coincidentally, we put out a report on Taiwan at Stanford. Mm -hmm. So the one of the things that I've done for a couple of years now is I've I've looked at state state actors, state state sponsored campaigns. And a lot of my work is focused on Russia. But there has been a sense that as more and more nation states realize that running influence operations and running election interference and other things is a possibility, that it's very easy to do and that it's relatively inexpensive to do, uh, there's a belief that other countries are going to begin to, to kind of get in the game as well. And China has been very interesting to me because it has certain things that are quite similar 
to major state actors, meaning it has an incredible state-sponsored uh, media ecosystem. Thousands and thousands of publications, radio stations, television, you name it, sources of influence, ways to broadcast. Uh, it also, since 2004, has had a commenter army. Um, it's been deployed only internally. So these are commenters whose job it is to either distract or, you know, they're, they're not out there to persuade their fellow citizens that the Chinese government is fantastic, but they're just there to nudge the conversation in particular directions, particularly, uh, we believe, through things like distraction. And mainly online? or Yeah, almost okay. exclusively online. And so you have these sort of the two-pronged development of capabilities, the media manipulation ecosystem, um, the propaganda, state-controlled narratives ecosystem, and then you have the ways in which that's now disseminated on social platforms. Uh, so there began to be these whispers um, that China was beginning to take that capability, the, the kind of commenter army capability that they've had since 2004, and begin to deploy it elsewhere. So when Huawei comes up in the news, there were kind of weird things that were happening on Reddit. Floods of comments kind of pushing a, a state-aligned narrative on uh, the kind of trade, um, you know, trade and corporate conflict, so to speak, around Huawei and 5G and a couple of other, you know, w ways in which uh, more economically kind of business-focused stuff, not so much um, election or, you know, democracy-related. Uh, but then also in the last week, um, Facebook and Twitter shut down a series of pages and, and about 900 accounts on Twitter that they attributed to China, saying that China was running influence operations targeting the Hong Kong protests. So this is a thing that we've expected to see. We've had a theory that it is happening. And so now we're starting to see it uh, begin to come to light, the idea that another major power is uh, interfering in its regional sphere of influence, amassing those capabilities. It's really interesting to me because Russia did that in Ukraine and uh, in the Caucasus and elsewhere before beginning to look outward to the U.S. So just in terms of the development of that process, um, one of my ongoing projects is to study the Taiwan January 2020 presidential election. And so this morning uh, we put out the preliminary background, which is walking through uh, various, you know, the kind of Taiwan-China politics and relationship, which most Westerners don't know, and I didn't yep, until I started. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this was, a, a, you know, relatively uh, relatively new to me as well. So one of the great things about Stanford is that you have access to China experts and to scholars who focus on the politics in region as opposed to the disinformation around the politics. So the Internet Observatory gives us an opportunity to take um, those of us who have expertise in influence operations and in manipulation and work with scholars who have expertise in region um, or in, you know, and kind of combine those two skill sets to have a more complete picture of, uh, of what's going on in an area. That's great. Yeah, it's nice having that support there. So yeah, what were your findings amazing. from that? It wasn't so much findings as a preliminary scene setter, um, which we're, you know, we're calling these the sort of um, baseline assessment type things where this is what has happened in the past. This is the cutting edge up to literally last week of um, what's going on in the environment. Here's how, uh, here's what we now know related to the Hong Kong operation. Here's how that ties into things that investigative journalists and others have begun to flag as potentially anomalous in the Taiwanese election. And then here's how we're monitoring that going forward. Yeah, the day-to-day -day for me is, I mean, <laughs> I I am like the the queen of calendars. Everything is like blocked off in half hour increments, you know. <laughs> I need to do that more. <laughs> I I can't live without doing it. It's it's uh it's like embarrassing how, you know, I have to mentally set like this is what I'm going to accomplish this morning and then like just like go and do it. Um so a lot of times it's uh it's writing, but I need a solid couple hours to just I read the local news in the countries that I'm paying attention to. 
look at social media feeds, look at kind of monitoring tools to get a sense of if something interesting or anomalous happened, you know, pull together some notes. So there's sort of a morning, uh, it's like an analyst process, Mm -hmm. uh, morning analyst process to understand what's going on. And then if there's nothing remarkable, um, you know, the kind of workflow goes to the next project or paper that has to has to come out next. Got it. And what are the red flags that put something on your radar? It's the way in which um, it's the way in which information flows, and there are certain things that would flag as anomalous. So the anomaly can be around um, a series of accounts that were literally created yesterday that all of a sudden are all talking about the same thing. It can be a hashtag that kind of emerges out of nowhere, and when you look at it. Um, again, there's something about the coordination among the accounts that makes it look like it was maybe purchased, you know, kind of paid engagement or uh, coordinated in a, you know, in a group somewhere as a kind of a, um, sometimes it's for the lulls. A lot of times it's to try to get media attention. There is also, you can look at what we would call um, persistent communities. So a persistent community would be a network of accounts that is closely related and talks to each other with some regularity. So you can be looking at the keywords, you can be looking at the content, um, you can be looking at the dissemination patterns. So you're looking for kind of content voice and dissemination. Did the content come from a blog that popped up a month ago? Uh, Did the accounts get created yesterday? Is the dissemination pattern indicative of coordination, meaning everybody all of a sudden tweeted the same thing at the same time? Uh, or all clustered in five minutes, a thing that had never been, you know, put out in the world before. Um, so you're looking to try to understand anomalous activity. And that's the uh, that's the process. Got it. Yeah, that sounds very intense. Lots of data work. So what is an example of some events happening today that maybe Americans would be surprised by? The challenge we have as Americans today is that there's a an increasing awareness that a lot of the internet is fake, mm-hmm. right? That um, a lot of the accounts aren't real. A lot of the, um, you know, there's massive kind of click fraud and ad fraud. There's a lot of manipulation to try to get things trending or pushed into your feed. Um, there's a huge battle being fought for your attention. Um, and the things that are most likely to grab your attention are things that are emotionally resonant and sensational. And so the challenge for people is how do you not become a kind of a chronic cynic? How do you not believe that like the entire world is fake and nothing Mm -hmm. is real? And how do you not fall into the kind of nihilism of like, well, I should just give up now. So that's, that's one of the things that I think as we think about how we respond to the new information ecosystem as Americans, the question becomes, how do we balance a healthy skepticism? How do you, how do we find that healthy skepticism? What, What is, what are those levels of healthy skepticism look like? I think this is, as we enter into our presidential primary, that's a huge, uh, you know, get, getting there fast, I think, is critically important because otherwise we run the risk of these um, sort of sensationalist, you know, whipsaws where you see mm-hmm. people encountering divergent opinions online and screaming that the other person must be a Russian bot. The surprise is over. They know that these things are happening. And the question becomes, how do we adapt? And mm-hmm. that's where I think that's the harder part. How do you think about who's responsible for figuring this out? I mean, I think of consumers, it's like, how will they know what's real, what's fake? Or is it the platform or the organizations who are ultimately responsible for controlling this? You know, there have been kind of major shifts in communication infrastructure in the past. And usually, and then there's the regulation that comes, right? So things kind of go off the rails. And then there's something that um, that we develop as a society to, to, to cope with it. 
I think we're at that inflection point right now, right? The laissez-faire free-for-all of, um, you know, the idea that there's a marketplace of ideas and social media is magically going to surface the good stuff into your feed. Nobody yeah. believes that anymore. How do we handle the regulatory and control aspect? Well, there's a couple things. Like first, the incentive structure for the platforms is just not aligned properly right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a function of legacy business models like advertising and things that reward sensationalism. More importantly, there's also the realization that they have now that their platform is dual use technology and that there are state actors on there. Mm-hmm. So they have to suddenly fill the role of uh, intelligence service identifying malign spies and infiltrators and yep. and uh, and bad actors. The platforms are the first line of defense and they have to bear that responsibility. Right. That's the that's the cost of, of being a billion dollar business and a hugely popular platform is mm-hmm. you have to have uh, that focus on user user protection, user security. That wasn't a very common opinion in 2016. That is a much more prevalent position now after, you know, two years of tech hearings and bad press. The other piece of it, though, is it really is a whole of society approach. So you can't neglect the role of government here. And that's because the system works best when people are working together. Uh, there's certain visibility, you know, and the, the Mueller report makes this really clear, that the government has into things like financial transactions that provide clues to what actors might be doing on social platforms. That's the kind of thing where it does us no good if the platforms and the government are not communicating around that information. So that's a, an area where this notion of information sharing is absolutely critical. You mm-hmm. can't move forward without recognizing that this is, you know, this is infrastructure at this point and the government has to weigh in and has to provide them with some guidance of what's coming. Yeah. Uh, similarly, the idea that, you know, the self-regulation works to a point, but there's no oversight. There's nothing to require that the self-regulatory momentum continues to progress, that they continue to enforce. Mm-hmm. And so we are starting to see regulators begin to think about um, who has oversight over the social communication sphere. And it's uh, part of the ongoing policy work that we're thinking about a lot at Stanford. Are the attackers different today than they were even back in 2016? Or who do they look like? Who are they targeting? Yeah, there's this uh, there's this overly simplistic thing that the press always says about, quote unquote, the Russian playbook. The term kind of drives me nuts because it wasn't just the Russians that, <laughs> that have been doing it. Yeah. But, you know, that was the one that really uh, captured the popular attention in the U.S. because it targeted us. Mm-hmm. There's an infrastructure it affords certain capabilities. It was designed to afford those capabilities so that advertisers could reach you and you could reach people. When anybody can reach anybody, there are certain externalities that come about as a result of that. And so we're at a point now where you can have um, spammers, which we've always had, domestic ideologues, which are um, just, you know, regular. I would say that trolls are kind of like a subclass of that, but there's also just really passionate people who sincerely believe, you know, we call it like the stand communities in music, like mm-hmm. the fandoms, right, that are that are out there. The internet is a series of factions. Everybody's fighting for attention. And so... Like the flat earth people, <laughs> like they really believe. <laughs> they really believe that stuff, you know, and I mean, here we are. <laughs> I didn't watch that documentary but yet, the, but uh, no, I they, should. They, it's God conspiracy. We can talk about conspiracy <laughs> theories on the internet, but the... um. There's, you know, the ideologues that they just want to get their message heard above the din and they recognize that this is a free for all. And so if you can buy a botnet or coordinate, you know, 75 of your closest friends and their 100 accounts each in a Discord server somewhere, then you can get attention, Mm -hmm. right? That's also really challenging because there is a, where is the line between legitimate activism, right? And coordinated and authentic activity. And that is a huge problem right now because 
2016, we could all agree that a foreign nation interfering in an American election was a problem. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the state-sponsored actors, in some ways, I feel like when I focus on that stuff, I'm focusing on the easy stuff because there's like a bright line there, right? There's a, um, this is not behavior that we consider acceptable and nobody's going to be crying for the free speech of Russian trolls, um, or they shouldn't be anyway. Devin Nunes might. The domestic ideologues piece, that's where we get at the idea of what is what is fair game? What is just good internet marketing? Mm-hmm. And that's where the line is. That's where the line is going, particularly during the primaries, where it's not so much state actors. It's just the passionate fan groups for the various, you know, twenty some odd candidates mm-hmm. out there on the internet trying to get attention. And that's uh, that's the kind of uh, the battle for attention being fought today. So. It's easy for bad actors to slide into those groups, to mm-hmm. amplify those groups. And so a lot of what we're looking for is uh, evidence of amplification of true organic um, American political sentiment. And that is much harder, much, much harder to find than a Russian troll throwing up a fake Black Lives Matter website and pretending to be a Black American. It seems like now I've seen more articles trying to debunk newsjacking headlines that are going on. So one thing that comes to mind is, you know, the Amazon is on fire oh, thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just saw a pretty, I mean, this is probably going to be controversial that people are going to be upset by, but it was a pretty good article that said all the pictures that you're seeing right now aren't from they're 2019. They're, no, no, they're not. They're fake. I, I was tweeting about that four days ago before oh, okay. that article came out. It, this made me crazy. <laughs> I forget who wrote the article, though, but it went through like... It was in, it it was in the, there's one in the New York Times for sure. And the then one. I think... Um, is it Roger Sullenberger? I think I also saw him getting Maybe. some. Uh, I read one of if his. He had the um, bullet tweets of like, it doesn't produce oxygen for the right. world. He was trying to do right. It's not the lungs of the world. He yep. was doing the debunking, which God love people who really get in there and try to fact check. Yep. But I was I was up at one in the morning, as I often am. <laughs> <laughs> and I was uh Pray for the Amazon, maybe was the hashtag that was trending. And I clicked into it because this is kind of my, you know, it's my job. Yep. This is what I do. And I and I saw all the images and thousands and thousands and thousands of retweets. And it was very interesting because um, so I, I did a quick look at the network, just who were these people that were promoting it. But I also I started by looking at the content and I just started right clicking and doing reverse image searches on all the pictures and the hashtags. And I was finding that they were all four years old. Yeah. There was one of like a, a mom monkey holding a baby monkey that had like collapsed and looked dead. It was a very sad picture. Gosh. And I and I looked and it turned out that was a monkey in India and the baby had fainted. Baby yeah. It wasn't even dead. So that was nice. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a plus. That was, that was a nice uplifting thing. There was pictures of like charred animals that was apparently from some Patagonia fires a couple of years back. And I started one by one screenshotting these tweets and saying like, what is going on in this yeah. hashtag? But it was one o'clock in the morning and that series of tweets got like no lift. It got like a yep. hundred retweets or whatever, like nobody paid attention to it. That's one of the problems though, right? Which is like, what do you do with that? So yeah. you have to have a big um, enough reach to even yeah, you have to that have, out there. You have to have a big enough reach or you have to be, I can't correct the narrative. Yeah. All I can say is this is not, this is not real. Yeah. Right? That's, that's, where, that's my limitation or that's the, that's the niche that I try to occupy, you know, let the experts actually talk about what the Amazon is and what the real issues with the fires are. But the problem is when this stuff goes viral. So the next thing I did was, so like I said, one in the morning, I'm like, okay, this isn't, this is largely all old misinformation. Then I was like, okay, is there, where does the coordination coming from? How are these accounts 
amplifying it. And that's when you realize that so much of the amplification and lift comes from influencers. I was just going to say, I was seeing it all over celebrities, comedians being Mm -hmm. like, everyone cares about this. However, the Amazon forest, our lungs of the earth are burning. I'm like, that's not true. Well, that's, that's the, (laughs) the lungs part, not the Amazon burning. (laughs) (laughs) So the influencers piece was interesting because it was American influencers, Mm -hmm. but also when I was up at one in the morning, most most of the tweets were coming out of other parts of the world. And so there was, um, the K-pop community had like latched onto this. And what is that community? K- uh, Korean Korean okay. pop music. Yeah. It, so there's um, internet fandoms, um, huge K-pop community on Twitter, just people okay. who really love Korean, largely boy, I think, boy bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a, a K-pop. I'm not very smart at K-pop. So. Apparently I'm not either. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? <laughs> but these are accounts that normally tweet about K-pop that all of a sudden were like extremely activated to talk about the Amazon rainforest. There was a big percentage of uh, people in India talking about it also. So it really got global degrees of attention. And this is what I mean when I say we study how information moves almost from like a contagion standpoint, right? Which is like, how does it reach different communities? How does it make the hop um, from one community to another? Within, you know, for something like a a US trending hashtag regionally, you don't need a whole lot of coordination to to make that, to Mm -hmm. get a regional trend. When you have these sort of big global things, it usually does move through these nodes of influencers, which gets at the question also of be influencer was not doing anything manipulative. The influencer found it emotionally resonant and didn't right click and go through the process of searching for the images Mm -hmm. because who the hell does that on their mobile phone on Twitter? Nobody, nobody. I just happened to have a laptop open, which is the only reason I bothered to do it. And how do you do a reverse image search again? Do you drop the image? um, So I use, I prefer TinEye, but um, there's a couple tools. There's Google image search, which if you're using Chrome, uh, you can right click and just click reverse image search. Okay. Tenai is, in my opinion, a little bit more accurate. Mm-hmm. And that you have to either upload the image or paste in the URL. So it's more like a search engine for images. Okay. And Tenai is great, I think, because it'll show you things where the crop is slightly different. So you're not going to have to fight to get an exact match because mm-hmm. sometimes an image will be manipulated because something will be cropped out and it changes the context. Got it. So the image is not false given our prevailing, you know, that that line again of what is quote unquote true. I feel like I operate in some like college pothead universe half the time where we're like, true, you know, what is truth, right? <laughs> what does true mean? <laughs> so I don't know if you call the image false, but you definitely call the image cropped. One thing I really, I like about Tenai is um, you can get a little bit more in the way of uh, it's been run through a filter or like an Instagram filter, you know, yep. but it'll still return a match. So you can see where the stuff comes from. That's cool. I haven't heard of that. How do you spell it? T-I-N-E-Y-E. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to try that out. Yeah, that's something even, it's like I know there's fake stuff out there going on and I don't think to reverse image search. I just, like you said, assume most things are probably not what they seem. Again, it gets to the idea that we're operating in a environment where we believe that there's, um, that we can, you know, believe what we see, right? And why wouldn't you? That's how you grew up. That's how I grew up. Believe that People are not out there seeking to intentionally manipulate you. And again, in the case of the Amazon, I don't think they were. The original, you know, trace it back and find the first tweeter who grabbed the picture. I didn't feel compelled enough to go kind of Mm -hmm. trace that back. That's more of the work of like an investigative journalist would probably do that. That would be the point where you'd have to ascertain was this, you know, did they pick those pictures deliberately? You know, where, what, how did the Indian monkey... Um, become the face of the Amazon rainforest yeah. fires. Yeah. Yep. 
And like, somebody made a conscious decision to take that image and somewhere down the line. Um, and we don't have much visibility into that. Yeah. Well, it is kind of nice seeing people and groups actually starting to, you know, unearth this kind of stuff and show the you know public what's going on, what's behind it. And I've seen even the past week, a couple examples of people trying to show like, what is the truth behind this? Or even I think I saw one with Serena Williams is battling someone in tennis. I don't watch tennis, but they picked a picture from her when she had lost to this person in 2004, when she has had many matches against her before and won. And they were like, why would they choose an image from 2004 when there's a lot more recent ones? And I've just seen a lot more of that lately, which inspires me that people are trying to, you know, uncover what's real, what's fake, and actually highlight it to the public in a way they haven't really seen too much before this. I think this is one of the key challenges with our trust in the media ecosystem, right? Which is, how do we think about in the era of zero cost publishing where anyone can write whatever they want on their blog or elsewhere, can call themselves a citizen journalist if they're out there with their iPhone, you know, how do we think about what it means to have uh, trust in a media environment? Uh, I think that when you have societal breakdowns in trust, that that is what's happening today, right? That's what the disinformation and misinformation are taking advantage of the low trust in institutions and low trust between people and institutions and between people and other people. The, you know, high profile failings of major media organizations have been a problem. Twitter has pushed us into this world of the five second news cycle. There are some times when I think, you know, I read the news in the morning and I think, oh, I I should, I should maybe do some tweets on that. And I'll, you know, (laughs) I think I'm interested in this. I'd like to say something about it. And then I, you know, put it off till the end of the day. And then it feels like we're in a totally different day by the, by four hours later. So like what I would have said is just, you know, has ceased to be relevant. There's a book that I love uh, by Daniel Borstein called The Image. It is so relevant today. And I, I, it's, it's a thing that really, um, I always, I return to it pretty often. Borstein was writing uh, at a time when the motion picture was relatively new. And he writes about the concept of events that are created to fill the time. So, It's no longer, you know, in the olden days, you had a newspaper. And so what was news was what was, you know, what had happened before the deadline for the print edition to come out. And that was what people saw. And then when you make this shift into television, you have the idea that five minutes of, you know, you can't have five minutes of dead air. The the anchors have to keep talking. So uh, this is how you get at the rise of these kind of... um, stories made to fill the time. He calls them pseudo-events. So a press conference announcing the opening of a hotel. That's not news, but it is news if somebody has a press conference and reporters show up. So this is the the idea of like what commands our attention. And when he was writing this book, it was this idea of the five minute, you know, or five hour uh, news cycle. And now we're in the five second news cycle. And so the question becomes, the proliferation of these pseudo events to the point where we have a pseudo reality where there's so many of them that, you know, figuring out what you should spend your attention on and what is a real event that's worth your time and what is even real on Mm -hmm. Twitter um, or on Facebook for that matter, on YouTube. Yeah, anywhere. (laughs) I say Twitter a lot because it's so visible and and it's the best representation of the speed of, uh, Mm -hmm. of information, in my opinion. You know, it's the entire social ecosystem at this point. And so when you have that velocity and you have that scale, you do find yourself in a completely different environment around how do you, how do you process information and how do you think about what is worth your attention and, um, and how do the reporters and media and others, uh, if you take the time to do the fact check and you're 
two hours after the story breaks, are you relevant? And that's mm -hmm. a, I think that's a terrible incentive structure. So how do you personally go about picking what's important to read or dive into? I consume information constantly. I'm on Twitter all the time. Um, I, I leave push notifications on for like Apple news and stuff. So I do actually respond to, to things that hit my radar. Um, I'm interested in breaking news situations. It is relevant to what I do. I, you know, you have disinformation campaigns are either these sort of very long-term, long-game things, like what you saw with Russia mm -hmm. uh, going after race relations, um, or there are these kind of short, punctuated moments in time where a breaking news situation happens, and then you can have these Amazon-style, so to yep. speak, disinformation campaigns or misinformation campaigns tied to that kind of fog situation. So I think I, I spend my days online and I try to not do that so much at night. So I try yeah. to go to books at night. I felt like there was a couple of years actually where I didn't read books, which maybe is embarrassing to admit, but there was just so many articles. So the return to books has been great because I feel like it lets me stay in a headspace a little bit longer as opposed to the, you know, this kind of ADD hopping around from one article to the next or the, you know, you've got 500 browser tabs open yes. and you feel like a failure if you <laughs> close read everyone just wait until the browser crashes half the time and yeah. you like declare bankruptcy and, <laughs> and move like, on can't go back right <laughs> yeah that sounds great yeah we love books around here i definitely think it keeps your attention longer and you can just stay focused and not, no screens at night is always i plus. like the <laughs> i feel like the older books also there's a little bit more depth and substance and maybe that's because if you're reading an older book today, it's because it's kind of stood the test of time. But as opposed to the more skimmable, like this could have been a long blog post, but I had to get to 200 pages kind yep. of thing. Yeah. So do you have any so, favorite books, like old ones that work or non-work related? Either one. Uh, there's a book, I'm going to blank on the author's name, but um, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. That's a Charles something, I think. We can I, link it up too in the yeah, show notes. It's, um, it's pretty old. Then... Walter Lippmann, some of the stuff on propaganda from the 1920s. Mm -hmm. The idea of manufacturing consent was actually from very, very, very long time ago. Chomsky used it as the title of the book, but it actually comes from Lippmann's work. Um, the idea that as a society, we have to come to consensus somehow. I'm kind of fascinated by that idea. That's the thing that I think about the most, actually, which is to say the disinformation campaigns that I look at or research are related to moments in time, punctuated moments in time. But ultimately, they all are there because the same operational goal of how does a society come to consensus on a candidate or a policy or a thing to pay attention to. That's a very old framework. And so I, I find um, those kind of treatises on things like crowd psychology and how, how we come to believe a thing, uh, that's, that's where I'm spending most of my time these days. Very cool. So to pivot a bit, you've yeah. had a nice, fun, winding career. So I'd love to kind of start <laughs> from the beginning. Like, how did you get here? What was your first job? And then how did it wind you all the way to where you are today? Yeah, yeah. My um, my my dad is always like, you can either have like a breadth first career or a depth first career. It's kind of like a computer science reference, but it's <laughs> um, the, you know, how do you think about being good interdisciplinary person versus going very, very deep for a very long period of time? My first job after college was uh, at a, a proprietary trading firm. Um, which means a uh, firm that trades its own capital called uh, Jane Street. And I started in 2004 at a computer science degree and a political science degree. And I minored in, I think it was called like global studies or something, but it, the focus was on Russia. So I had this kind of weird educational experience. And then Wall Street's always hiring. You know, there's like a recession in 2004 when I was graduating. So 
I got a job writing code, actually. I wrote like scrapers. Oh. <laughs> no, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Terminal didn't have an API. And like we had to calculate, you know, do a bunch of calculations for options pricing and things overnight. And so my job was literally to write things to make the traders jobs easier. And I'd been there for a couple months and realized that, um, you know, my favorite class in college, I really loved applied math. Um, I have, you know, computer science, you take a lot of applied math classes. And I should have just majored in that because uh, I never liked engineering, <laughs> but I really liked the math. And so I loved graph theory. I felt like, well, I can do the trading job. Like, how do I get them to let me do the trading job? Mm-hmm. And you weren't supposed to switch. That was really a big no-no. You were either hired to be a trader or you were hired to write code and um, you know be on the tools development or uh, quant side of the house. I wound up taking the trading classes at night, I basically talked my manager into letting me um, take the classes. And then very conveniently, in a way that often happens, he wanted to go do something else, meaning he wanted to switch um, what he was focusing on. And so since I was like his apprentice, basically, he decided that he would train me to take over his job and then that would free him up to go do something else because he'd basically hire, you know, effectively hired his replacement. So that's how I came to be a trader, actually. <laughs> and... I loved it. I mean, I did it for seven years. So I have had a bunch of different things, but I tend to stay in them for for a while. Mm -hmm. I was a trader during 2008. So during the financial crisis, I I, uh, traded uh, Latin America and Brazilian specifically equity derivatives. I liked how fast it was. The impact of real world events on the financial markets instantaneously you know, Deepwater Horizon, the news breaks and the oil industry tanks, right? You know, the a plane crashes and you, you just watch the, you know, seeing the kind of numerical relationship of um, ways in which asset classes fit together. You know, so I was an arbitrage trader. So my job was to look at um, systems. And I feel like even though I've had a bunch of different careers, it does all kind of come down to how does the system work? How does the system fit? What is normal versus what is not normal? Arbitrage trading is basically about finding these moments of um, these moments when the market isn't behaving as it's supposed to. Something's out of line. Um, there's an inefficiency. And then if you're an arbitrage trader, you kind of buy one thing and sell the other to kind of bring that relationship back into order, which is kind of how I think about anomaly detection today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I felt like I had moved numbers around on a spreadsheet for a long time. And you don't produce anything as a trader, let's be honest, you're, you're not. But with venture capital, I thought like, here's an opportunity. This was in 2011. Um, so long before the kind of tech lash, here's an opportunity to come to the Valley, to be around people who are doing really interesting, innovative things, right? Who are thinking about what's possible, who are producing things, who are making, literally physically making things. I was right around the maker movement was, uh, I'd gone to a couple of maker fairs in New York. So I, I came out here, I took a job with Tim O'Reilly. And I just loved it. I mean, he had this ethos around investing in things that made a difference in the world. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just, you know, of course there is a goal of getting a return. If you're a venture investor, you're, you know, you've got LPs you're responsible for. Um, But there was this idea of what are the things that will be, that will make people's lives better in a fundamental way. I don't like San Francisco. I find living here to be, you know, yes. <laughs> I really strongly, strongly prefer the East Coast. We talked about this I earlier. Know. <laughs> We're like, oh, San Francisco, <laughs> scary. But I love the people in the Valley. I love that anything is possible kind of mm-hmm. um, attitude. I love that people get excited to talk about ideas. Yep, agree. I didn't have that on Wall Street. And so it was a very 
different experience for me. I loved how helpful people were, how they would answer your emails, how mm-hmm. they would, you know, actively work to help your career. That's the, the biggest thing Chad and I huge here. I mean, it's yep. it's it's what it's what drives the place. And so I did venture capital for a couple of years. That's a very like upper out kind of career. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that it was basically two to three years and then I was going to go do something else. So that was like a planned yeah. you know, career obsolescence, so to speak. And I went and I started a company. I had done a lot of investing in hardware and I went to China and I looked at manufacturing processes and I was really, I found the whole social internet from an economic standpoint, like a lot of the the kind of big three companies and social really owned the space. And so I would get all these pitches for mobile, social, local type stuff, but the business model would always be, and then we sell ads. And I'm like, yeah. it's kind of a fixed pot. You know, there's not this, this um, unlimited ad budget that is just going to fund, that's going to, you know, let you operate and this guy and that other guy and that other guy, they're always guys <laughs> operate. So it was more of a, you know, I, I came from a very quantitative world where prices made sense. Mm-hmm. And so I would look at these valuations or these business models, and it just felt like just such hand-wavy BS. Mm -hmm. And I really gravitated towards hardware because I felt like there is a calculation here, right? There's a fully landed cost of goods. There's manufacturing. There's advertising. There's a set price that someone is going to pay you for your product, right? And um, sometimes maybe they'll pay you for the data plan and you use the product as a loss leader, but ultimately there's still something there. Yep. And so I found that appealing. I think some, I think some VCs found it very kind of like narrow-minded is not the word, but like unimaginative maybe. But it made me comfortable to 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 kind of sit in that niche. And so I started a company looking at uh, not the last mile as in the local delivery, but looking at what happens when you manufacture a product. One of the things that a lot of the hardware companies I worked with botched was actually the supply chain logistics piece. You would see this all the time. They would do a Kickstarter. They would clear millions on Kickstarter. Everybody wanted the product. Um, and then there was no real idea of how they were going to actually execute. You know, Even if they had a sense of the manufacturing, the logistics was always a complete afterthought. So I started a company with um, two friends who I met who were, you know, had both had, uh, one had worked at Apple supply chain and uh, one had had a really funny supply chain experience trying to get, he, he wanted to just, uh, it was container shipping. We were looking at container shipping. Uh, he was trying to moved some vehicles from one place to another on different continents and had gone through this experience of trying to procure a container to execute on that process and just found it completely inscrutable and um, really just not in any way geared for anybody other than either a freight forwarder who was going to kind of bundle a whole bunch of these small orders uh, or a huge behemoth of a business. Mm-hmm. And so that was how Haven came to be uh, came to be started. I left Haven because... I had started by this point, I was really interested in the social media manipulation piece by this point. Mm-hmm. It was something I had kind of picked up as a hobby late at night. Um, I was just looking at network maps and trying to understand the spread of conversations. And I got really interested in the anti-vaccine movement. I, Like I said, I had had a baby recently and we were putting him on the list for preschools. And I was just horrified by the vaccination rates locally. Then being lower here? Yeah, 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 yeah. compared to New York, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually picked up the phone and I called my congressman, you know, my my state state rep, 
uh, and was like, come on, you guys got to do something. And what is this? You know, (laughs) why are these people's like insane, unscientific belief allowed to put other people's kids at risk? That Mm -hmm. just doesn't make any sense to me. And so I got really involved. The Disneyland measles outbreak happened a couple months after I ran this big data analysis of like 10 years of trends using California public health data. That was the one thing I got to say. Like when I was at Jane Street, I was doing quantitative stuff all the time. There's Mm -hmm. always a data set, always a model to build. And when I was in venture capital and startups, I felt like I I didn't have that outlet and I missed it. And that was really what took me back to kind of where I am now, which is again, the idea of like systems and inefficiencies. So how has having kids that we were talking about this earlier, how has that changed your view on career and life and what you're working on now? Well, in a funny way, I mean, my that advocacy around the vaccination stuff for my son, it was inspired by my son, took me to where I am now. I, I think as far as how it's changed me as a person, I was ambivalent about the idea of kids. And that's because, you know, I'd heard all the horror stories, especially yeah. as like a woman who really wanted a career. Yep. Can't and have it all. That's yeah, what I, always I know. Heard. They can't have it all. And And that's true. You can't have it all, but you can, in fact, like build something that you're quite happy with, Mm -hmm. right? Build a, you know, and not everybody can, but I think that I was in a position where at a, my husband was, um, you know, one of five, really excited about having a family. And we, you know, I, (laughs) I kind of made him commit. I'm like, I don't want to give up the career, you know? yeah. <laughs> having the baby, but to be clear, you know, <laughs> and it, you know, we had a lot of really frank conversations about it before doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was 32 when my son was born. So I was also, again, a little bit more established. I felt like I had, mm-hmm. I knew how, like how I needed to live to feel fulfilled. And so having the child though, I think made me much more aware of the broader community. And that was both good and bad, right? So it opened me up to meeting a lot of different types of people and hearing about other people's experience, you know, as a mom, making quote unquote mom friends, yep. <laughs> joining the mommy group. <laughs> Everyone always asks me, they're like, have you joined the mommy oh group? God, I'm like, mommy no, group. sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly though, I, my, um, my two-year-old, came down. So I have have two kids. Um, My second one is two. She came down with appendicitis, which completely, you know, what two-year-old gets appendicitis? It Um. happened when I was on a plane to Europe. Speaking of, here's your your mom career story. I was giving two talks, one in Brussels, one in Tallinn. I was going to be in Europe for five days and they were both really important talks. I'd prepped a ton. My husband even helped me make my slides because he's amazing. Um, And I get off the plane in Frankfurt to a text message saying it wasn't a stomach virus, her appendix ruptured, she's going for emergency surgery. So this is, you know, I'm 15 hours away. And this was, you know, I you know get my husband on the phone and he's like, you know, come back if you want to, but she's going to be out of surgery and we can make this work. And I think you should stay and give your talks. You know, you prepped for them and, you know, I know that they're important and that's, you know, that's what you should do. And so we wound up flying my mom out from New York because she could get there in like eight hours as Mm -hmm. opposed to me with like a whole, you know, the nightmare of an international change. And then, but then the immediate question was like, what do we do about our son? Because he can't be at the hospital. And so I literally posted to the mommy group, you know, (laughs) I was like, hey guys, uh, this is, you know, this is, this is what's going on. Is there, um, 
you know, basically asking for advice. Had anybody's child been through the surgery? What should my husband expect? Is there, you know, and the community really kind of came together to help us. I mean, people were like, can we bring you meals? Aww. You know, so it, it was a, a nice way. I, you know, I have no family in San Francisco and neither does my husband, which was how we came to be really reliant on, uh, you know, the community and a handful of friends that we had actually made through the mommy group. So it was, there's something to be said. I mean, this is, this is like, the idealized form of the internet, right? Which is you find these people and they come to be supportive and that I think is um, invaluable. So yeah, my, my mom stories though are mostly, you know, and I gave my talks and I came home and everything is fine. And we actually wound up, um, we took her camping the next weekend. She really just wanted to go camping. Yeah. (laughs) So she went from being in a hospital bed to like, you know, being in a little camper van, but she's, uh, she's done great. Yeah. They're so resilient. Um, but no, I, I've loved it. I feel like it's really given me a sense of um, the importance of community. Also, it's made me definitely much more politically active in terms of local politics. You know, you're advocating for the life that you want your child to have. You're yeah. advocating for the school, the educational experience that you want your child to have. That was the one thing where I felt like San Francisco is very young and very few people stay after they have kids because it's staggeringly expensive. It's filthy. Yep. And it's just, you know, if you can even find an apartment big enough for kids, it's pushing upwards of 8000 a month for rent. Mm-hmm. So I did feel that having that, um, you know, people leave. And I think that that's just such a tragedy because I don't think that cities function without that, you know, it definitely changed how I thought about community anchors and... Uh, I mean, I feel like this is, you know, <laughs> probably restating the obvious. Everybody has this like epiphany on their own, but um, but that's uh, that's what it's been like for me. Yeah, yeah, it was a career change. It was made me super politically active, and uh, gave me a really great community of people. Yeah, very cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Renee. Hopefully, we can have you come back for round two sometime in the future. Thank you for having me. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at Mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.